Hello Phoenixes and welcome Anti-Pave podcast, created for the professional working to anti-violence against women and children. I'm Marianne, your host, and today I'm truly honored to talk with Barry Goldstein. I already followed him for a long time now on social media, and as a protective mom who has been criminalized by the court, and being that the subject that started the PAVE podcast, Barry is someone that inspires me on a regular basis in the work he, he does to protect abuse victims and their children. Barry Goldstein is an internationally recognized domestic violence author, speaker, and advocate. He is the author of five of the leading books about domestic violence and child custody, most recently The Quincy Solution, Stop Domestic Violence and Save $500 Billion. Barry will be the featured speaker at an international conference in Melbourne, Australia on August the 3rd. He developed the Safe Child Act, which is the solution to the widespread failure of custody courts to protect children in abuse cases. Barry frequently serves as an expert witness to try to educate courts about current research. He is Director of Research for the Stop Abuse Campaign and Co-Chair of the Child Custody Task Group for NOMAS. Today we will discuss parental alienation syndrome, the criminalization of protective mothers and fathers, the ACE studies, the Safe Child Act, which is going to ensure that judges make the health and safety of children their top priority, because a child cannot be healthy or safe with someone who abused them or abused their parent, and the Quincy Solution, the first realistic plan to end domestic violence. You can find the show notes, links and references at www.anialaloyga.com, but as regular listeners know, Because my name is quite difficult to spell, you can also go to pavepodcast.com and you will go to the same website. Let's get started. How did you become a domestic violence author, speaker, and advocate? Well, I mean, I was a typical sexist guy. Um, I got the same misinformation that most uh, boys and men get. And um, what happened when I was uh, a young attorney, um, I had a case in which a father had hit his daughter, and I didn't know if what he did was considered abuse. And about that time, a friend asked me to join the board of a battered women's shelter, and I thought that if I did that, you know, I would learn more and I could better uh, do my job. And um, I made the good decision of sitting and keeping my mouth shut and listening to women who understood these things. And I started to earn a lot. Wow. And, and how did it develop after that? Um, well, because I was working with the um, battered women's shelter, um, and of course there are very few attorneys that know anything about domestic violence, um, I started getting a lot of recommendations. And so an ever greater part of my work became helping women um, who were victims of domestic violence. And over time, many of my clients talked about wanting to write a book to share their experiences to help other women, and none of them ever did. So eventually I decided to write their stories, and that became my first book. And when my first book was published, then I sort of became part of the um, uh, Protective Mothers Movement on a national level. Can you tell me the definition of a protective parent? Um, That would be um, someone who 
whose child is being harmed, usually by the other parent, and they take whatever actions are necessary to protect the child. You have written a lot about PAS versus ACE. What do you think about PAS? Although, you know, they tend to use a lot of different terms, um, like just uh, alienation or parental alienation, because uh, parental alienation syndrome, you know, is deservedly, uh, has a bad reputation, and so they try to call it something different. It's the same in the Netherlands. So, I mean, you know, what a lot of the court professionals don't understand the origins of um, PAS, that um, it is not based on any research, but rather the um, beliefs and experiences of Richard Gardner that includes many public statements to the effect that sex between adults and children um, can be acceptable. And I don't think judges would want to be associated with that if they knew the origins, but it's very rare for attorneys to mention that. Why do they lack this knowledge? Because it's, it's, you can find it online. It's, it's available to everyone. And uh, that's really astonishing me that uh, many judges just don't know the origin of uh, parental alienation syndrome. Do you know, you have been in court a lot, so do you know what's behind that? Well, I, I think there are two things that are working here. The first thing is remember that when domestic violence first became a public issue, we had no research. And the popular assumptions were that domestic violence was caused by um, mental illness or substance abuse or the actions of the victim. And so they developed practices based on those assumptions. We now know those assumptions were wrong, but the courts haven't changed their practices. At the same time, you had Richard Gardner, who was looking for um, a way to help abusers so that he and other court uh, professionals could make a lot of money. Because remember, contested custody is overwhelmingly domestic violence cases, and domestic violence is about control, and that also includes financial control. So if you want to make a lot of money, you need to be on the side of wealthy abusers, and PAS was designed to give um, these professionals something to use to manipulate the courts. And initially, and even sometimes today, <clears throat> protective mothers' um, attorneys are not really fighting it or not letting the court know that it's, on, it's not proper, that there's no scientific basis for it. And so it has become deeply ingrained um, you know, in the court system. And it's interesting, um, we have a new study coming um, U.S. Department of Justice called the Meyer Study, and one of the findings is that the courts are treating alienation syndrome as if it was more consequential to children than domestic violence or child abuse. And you called it the Myers? The I didn't get Meyer. The... Yeah, Joan Meyer, Professor Joan Meyer, she's a law professor at George Washington University, 
and one of the leading experts uh, in the United States um, about domestic violence and related issues. Why do judges criminalize protective parents? Well, you know, throughout our discussion of child custody and domestic violence and child abuse, you know, people are looking for a quick and simple explanation, particularly if we're doing something like a podcast. And the problem is that it's really complicated. There are many factors. I mean, we have gender bias. We have ignorance. We have, as we discussed earlier, practices from the 1970s, and they haven't updated it with current research. Um, one of the problems with the legal system, um, certainly uh, in terms of the English-based legal system, is it's based on the assumption that when they make a decision, it's right. I mean, you can appeal and all of that, but the assumption is that it's right, and they really don't have a good way to find out when they're wrong. Like in the United in the last 10 years, 600 children, more than 600 children have been murdered by parents involved in contested custody, mostly abusive fathers. And in many cases, the courts um, have given the father the access they need to kill the child. And absent that kind of dramatic event, the courts have no way to know that they made a bad decision. The children are suffering in silence. They will have a lifetime of problems, but the court thinks they did the right thing. They don't really have a mechanism to find out what's wrong. And, you know, so when they make a decision that denies or minimizes of the mother's concerns about domestic violence and child abuse, if the mother continues to believe, based on her experiences, that the father is dangerous, you know, there are many judges, and they tend to be the worst judges, who want to silence them, want to punish them, um, and that's how they're doing it. Um, in my second book, my first book with Mohanna, uh, we have a chapter by Joan Zorza, who is one of the leading experts and longtime uh, commentators about domestic violence and child custody. And she wrote this chapter about retaliation. And in the chapter, she talks about that it's really important when judges make a decision against the protective mother, and she continues to believe it, it's important that they don't retaliate, because given the present circumstances, it's very likely that the judge made a mistake. And uh, can you tell me, uh, of the listeners, the title of the second book? Um, it's um, Domestic Violence, Abuse, and Child Custody. And you developed the Safe Child Act, and um, which is a solution to the widespread failure of custody courts to protect children abuse cases. Uh, can you tell me more about that? Because that's very interesting. Yeah, I, I'm really excited about the Safe Child Act. You know, what we did is we took all of the research that we now have and put together a comprehensive plan to make the court safe for children. And the first thing we say is that in all custody and visitation decisions, the health and safety of children 
must be the first priority. That seems obvious. Yeah. And the good thing about it is it, it's really hard for anyone to argue about that. You know, what, what else would be more important than the health and safety of children? So it, it reframes the discussion in some really good ways. And the point is, you know, research like the ACE study, Adverse Childhood Experiences, you know, talks about the enormous health risks from exposure to domestic violence and child abuse. And just as an example, alienation does not create a health risk. So it automatically means that we need to focus on what really impacts children instead of less important issues. Um, so that's really helpful. The second thing is we say that the courts need to integrate current scientific research like ACE and like the Saunders study, which shows the, the need for better training for judges, lawyers, and especially evaluators. And so, you know, the problem is the courts should have integrated research like that years ago. But, you know, they tend to use the same small group of professionals who are making a lot of money and not helping children. Um, and so they don't hear about new research, and they're really slow to integrate that research and very frankly, any court that tries to adjudicate a domestic violence or child abuse case without using Ace and Saunders will destroy children's lives. And that's what's going on. And the next, oh, sorry. <laughs> now please continue. <laughs> the next thing is um, to make a um, multidisciplinary approach. What the Saunders study says is that we need to use the right expert that we, you know the original decision was to turn to mental health professionals as if they're experts in everything and you know they are experts in psychology they're experts in mental illness they're not experts in domestic violence they're not experts in child sexual abuse and when they try to resolve those issues that's where we go in really bad directions and so what we want to do is when we have a DV issue, use someone who's an expert in DV, maybe a DV advocate. <clears throat> if it's a child sexual abuse, use someone who focuses on that full time, and that way we can you know, make better decisions. The next thing in the Safe Child Act is an early hearing in custody cases that is limited to the issue of abuse. Because if one of the parents is abusing either the other parent or the child, we know what the outcome should be. The safe parent gets custody and the abusive parent, at least initially, is limited to supervised visits. We don't need to go through all of the other uh, distractions that abusers use, you know, to fool the, the uh, courts. And what that means is that a case that might now take many months or years can be resolved in a couple of hours. That saves a fortune, both in court time and for the litigants, and most important, gets them to a better decision. The next thing in the Safe Child Act, as I told you it was a comprehensive um, proposal, um, <laughs> is training and retraining. Because judges and other court professionals 
they need to learn about the new research. They, they need to learn about things like gender bias, but they also need to unlearn a lot of the misinformation that they've heard throughout their careers. You know, when you were asking before about why the courts are doing some really harmful things, part of it is that um, judges were lawyers before that. They spent their careers hearing this misinformation and sincerely believe it. And so we need to do retraining. And the other thing I would mention in terms of the Safe Child Act is that we would have funding for domestic violence agencies so that they can supply um, advocates who could help in the training of court professionals, but also can be trained so that they could serve as expert witnesses, which would mean that there would be an inexpensive way for courts to get the information they need, you know, in terms of an expert witness, rather than just paying for mental health degrees that don't tell us anything about domestic violence or child abuse. And how do uh, you implement the Safe Child Act? What's the next step? Well, the first thing, obviously, is we need to get it passed. Um, in the United States, we have uh, three states that have introduced it, uh, and that would be Hawaii, uh, Pennsylvania, and Utah. Um, it hasn't been passed yet. The other, there are other states where we are working to try to get it introduced and then passed. And, uh, you know, really exciting. Um, in August, I am going to be a plenary speaker at an international conference in Australia. And the purpose is to promote the Safe Child Act in Australia. And that's, you know, something I'm really looking forward to. Well, that's a big thing, Australia. This is even beyond the United States itself. Right. Um, because you know, this is a international problem. I mean, you know, most uh, certainly developed countries are making the same mistakes <coughs> that we are making in the United States, and, you know, for the same reasons, you know, it was developed, you know, the responses were developed when we didn't have the research, and, you know, the courts want to justify what they've been doing instead of using the new research to better protect children. Uh, you're also behind the Quincy Solution. You wrote a book about it. Can you tell me a little bit yeah, that, that, about that? that's also, you know, to me, really exciting. And, you know, in the, starting in the late 70s until the mid-90s, Quincy, Massachusetts, which is a county just outside Boston, um, they developed a, a group of best practices that dramatically reduced domestic violence crime. And Bill Delahunt, who was one of the leaders and was the district attorney, noticed when he looked at the... Um, uh, personal records of prisoners at a nearby high security prison that almost all of the prisoners had a childhood history that included domestic violence and often child sexual abuse. And he figured out that if they could prevent domestic violence, it would reduce all crime. And that's exactly what happened. A county that had averaged five or six domestic violence homicides every year enjoyed several years in a row with no murders 
and then there was one, and then they were back to none. And other communities like San Diego and Nashville used similar practices and had similar good results. And so I studied that and I updated the good practices. And one of the things Bill Delahunt noticed was that some victims stopped cooperating with the prosecution when the abuser sought custody. That did not derail Quincy because at the time that was a rare uh, tactic. Today it is a standard abuser tactic for the worst abusers to go after custody as a way to regain control and punish mothers for leaving. The courts haven't figured out that's what those cases are about. And that has undermined our entire response to domestic violence. Um, which is the, the purpose of that tactic, so that if we want to um, prevent domestic violence, we have to include the custody courts in the best practices uh, so that they stop helping abusers regain control. But I'll tell you what happened when I started doing the research. I looked at Quincy. I compared it with Dutchess County, New York, which is a community about 90 miles north of New York City. And they had a series of domestic violence homicides because they were using a lot of bad practices, including the custody courts there were especially horrible. And what happened was the women stopped going to court because the courts were making it worse instead of better. Um, and so as I was doing this research, um, one of the people I interviewed in Quincy gave me a link to a study, a medical study, about health costs related to domestic violence. And what we found out is that in the United States, we are spending $750 billion a year, billion with a B, in order to allow men to abuse women. And when you add the cost to crime and the fact that so many women and children don't reach their economic potential. What this meant is in the United States, we're spending over a trillion dollars every year to allow uh, men to abuse women. And that's about $3,000 a person. That's a lot of money. And we're doing it year after year after year. And w when I saw that, you know, for me, the world changed because that's the incentive for public officials to make the changes that they should make just because it's right, just so that women and children don't have to live with this abuse. But the fact that there is so much money we could save, that we could use for so many better things, you know, that is a huge incentive to adopt the Quincy solution and to live without domestic violence. And how is it going to continue with the Quincy solution? What is the next step? Well, any community, and I, when I say community in the U.S., it would probably be uh, countywide, because what you need to do is put together law enforcement, the prosecution office, the courts, uh, certainly the DV organization should be involved, and other community organizations should also be involved, because you need a coordinated community response. And they could put together 
best practices. Um, in the U.S., we would need the states to pass the Safe Child Act in order to um, help, um, you know, prevent custody from being used to undermine this work. And then that community could enjoy the benefits. What I expect is that once a few communities do this and they see the huge benefits, then I think it will spread like wildfire. But it's getting the first few communities to do that that has, you know, been the problem. I hope that other countries will soon follow and take a look both at the Quincy Solution and the Safe Child Act, learn from it and implement it in their own governmental system. As we mentioned before, you are also a speaker. And for the next part of the interview, I would like to know what your intention is as a speaker. Well, I mean, I think that most people are unaware of what's going on in the custody court system, Mm -hmm. are unaware of the opportunities that the ACE research provides. And I'm trying to help them understand that um, because we could change this world in some really wonderful ways um, if or if we just took it seriously about preventing domestic violence and child abuse. We now have, you know, just uh, so much more incentive to do that, and I'm trying to spread the word. How did you first get to know Mohenna? Um, that's <laughs> a nice story. Um, After my first book came out that was um, Scared to Leave, uh, Afraid to Stay, um, I got the email that any author would love to get. Um, and the email said, how can I buy a bunch of your books? <laughs> and it was Mohanna. Oh, that's and really nice. <laughs> we've been working together Ever since, um, you know, uh, you know, working on the Battered Mothers Con Conference, she served as um, an expert witness in some of my cases when when I was still an attorney, and um, you know, we are continuing to collaborate. I'm not familiar with an expert witness in custody cases um, around here, uh, at least not yet. How does something work like that? Uh, someone approaches you and asks you to be an expert witness? Well, in general, an expert witness should be someone who, by virtue of education, training, experience, has substantially more knowledge of a subject that is relevant to the court um, and they, you know, they therefore could qualify as an expert and only experts are allowed to give opinions. You know, the problem in this country is that they mostly use mental health professionals and they are experts, as we said before, they're experts in psychology, they're experts in in um, mental illness, but it's the equivalent of using a general practitioner when a patient has cancer or heart disease. <laughs> and so they keep getting it wrong, but the courts are so used to looking for a mental health degree rather than looking for who knows about domestic violence and child abuse that it has really undermined the system, although it has certainly uh, helped mental health professionals earn large incomes. 
you must have a schedule that's beyond crazy. But um, are you currently writing new books? Are there new activities next to the Safe Child Act? Um, I, I think, you know, in terms of new things, it is the Safe Child Act and the Quincy Solution. I, I am working on a couple more books that will come out, one with Mohanna and um, about trauma, and one uh, I had a book with Elizabeth Liu training attorneys to present domestic violence cases, and we're going to have an update on that book. Um, and one other thing that I do on a regular basis is I teach in a batterer program, a New York model batterer program. And, you know, one of the things that's important to know is that the only thing that has been shown to change abusers' behavior is accountability and monitoring. And too often, uh, professionals who don't understand research, you know, are trying to respond to abusers, you know, with anger management or substance abuse um, or um, leniency. And these things don't work. And that that's why we haven't made more progress than we should. We need accountability. Um, domestic violence, and the same thing is true with some other gendered crimes. You have to remember that a little more than a generation ago, these behaviors were perfectly acceptable or even encouraged. Um, so that there's still a widespread belief that this, these behaviors can be allowed or, you know, there can be a justification for it. And so it's especially important for there to be significant consequences to send the message that these behaviors are no longer tolerated. And too often the courts don't get that. And when you are old and are looking back to your life, what do you want to have accomplished and why is it so important to you? Because I can hear that you're very passionate and you're very informed. What do you want to have accomplished and why is it so important? Well, you know, just about every day I hear these horrific stories and children are really suffering. What's important for me is for that to stop. And we know how to stop it. Yes. And that's what's really difficult. Now that we know how to stop it and we're not doing it, that's really bad. Mm. I agree that the suffering of children must stop. And I believe that your conviction fuels your passion. And that is how real changes are ultimately made. It's astonishing to me that with all the necessary information that is available, that the system still holds on to old ways and beliefs. Is there a way we can support you and your cause? Um, I hope that people will support the Safe Child Act. Um, they can be passed in, in any state, in any country. That's the solution. And so I hope people will learn about it and promote it and you know try to bring it to your communities. Same thing with the um, um, Quincy Solution. Um, within the United States, the Stop Abuse Campaign um, is working to pass the Safe Child Act. And so anyone in the, in the U.S. can join the, Safe, uh, the uh, Stop Abuse Campaign 
and try to help us in that way. You have told us already something that you discovered that changed how you look at things, but is there maybe something else that well, was an eye-opener for you or that really touched you on a deeper level and that encouraged you even more to move forward? Because it's really hard. Like you mentioned, you every day you are confronted with such horrible stories. And, well, how do you continue and not let yourself drain? And what inspires you to continue <laughs> without feeling well, drained? When I was a young attorney, um, I had a case in which three young children told their mother that their father was physically and sexually abusing them. And the mother did everything right. She sought a protective order, she sought custody, and she complained to Child Protective Services. And initially, the children were protected. The father was limited to supervised visits. And the children told the judge, told their, uh, their attorney, told the caseworker from CBS, told the evaluator what the father was doing. And as usually happens in these cases, They assumed that the mother coached the children, and so they ordered that um, normal visitation resume. Before that could happen, the babysitter in the family confronted the father in front of the law guardian for the children, and the father admitted kissing his daughters on their privates, and the law guardian immediately made a motion to stop the visitation. And I, as the attorney for the mother, joined that. Um, the judge asked the evaluator what to do, and the evaluator said that the father really used bad judgment, but there's no reason to interfere with the visitation. Um, during the first visit, the four-year-old was penetrated for the first time. I called Child Protective and because they didn't know about the father's admission. When the judge heard... He yelled and screamed at me, how dare you? They already investigated. They found nothing. Um, but this time, Child Protective had a different um, caseworker, did a thorough investigation, found out that the father had done even worse than we believe. And so they brought charges against the father. He never again had anything but supervised visits. The mother won custody. And they had a dinner to celebrate, and they invited the caseworker and me. And the children had gifts for us, but best of all is what they called us. Mm, the they called us believers <laughs> yeah. because we believed them when all the professionals who were supposed to protect them didn't. And so early in my career, I learned there is no greater honor than to be a believer. I don't even know what to say anymore. <laughs> I find that story so heartwarming. What those children have gone through and, well, the things that that mother and you have faced in court. And, and, and really a judge screaming at you? That's really... Yes. Uh, is that even allowed? <laughs> well, it's not appropriate and it's not ethical, but it certainly occurs all too often. I can understand that there is no greater honor than to be a believer. You face very difficult situations and heartbreaking stories like this one. 
can you tell me what inspires you to move forward and not let it break you? Um, I mean, I think I'm inspired by the women and children who are going through this and fighting to survive. And I've learned so much from them um, and, you know, from women in the movement because I didn't know any of this when I was growing up. You know, today is the 50th anniversary of the death of Bobby Kennedy. He um, often went around, he said, um, some men see things as they are and ask why. I see things that never were and ask why not. And if you think about the ACE research, what we know today is that for thousands of years, society has allowed and encouraged behavior that we now call domestic violence and child abuse. Our present level of cancer and heart disease and diabetes and mental illness and suicide and substance abuse and crime and all sorts of other horrible things is based on our current level of domestic violence and child abuse. But what's exciting is that it means if we use the best practices to prevent domestic violence and child abuse, we can dramatically reduce all of those horrible diseases and social problems. And that's maybe what Bobby Kennedy was saying. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for being a part on the show. It was really my honor to talk with you. And um, thank you for inspiring so many people and uh, the work that you do. Uh, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you for it. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Okay, I enjoyed it. We'll be in touch. Thank you so much. I really would appreciate it. And I want to thank the listener too for tuning in. I think that one of the wisest lessons in this episode is that we need to change assumptions that were made in a time when there was a lack of research. Now we can know better, we can do better. My thoughts go out to all protective mothers, but also fathers coming out of abusive relationships, facing the unknown and feeling deep uncertainty. I know what you are going through since I'm a protective mother myself. I have been forced to let my children see their biological father when he wanted to regain control, even though my sons didn't remember who he was, and despite all of the abuse that happened before and after I left his home. I know what it is like to get your children back home, crying, upset, confused, and abused. And in my case, one of my sons was abused so severely that he is now hearing impaired. I know what it's like to be threatened and punished by a judge who decides to completely ignore facts and who let the rights of a father prevail over the safety of a child. I know what it's like to stand up and defend your child despite the possible consequences. Dear protective mother or father, know that you are not alone and that your injustice is seen and heard and that we are doing the best we can to change the tides for you. If you take comfort, of reading more of my story, you can go to pavepodcast.com, click the link of this episode and find the blog post in the links over there. 
You can also find the show notes, links and references at pavepodcast.com. We will be back with another episode of the Pave Podcast. If you like this episode, please give it a rating in the iTunes store. You can also check us out at pavepodcast.com, like I mentioned earlier, where you can find more about the guests on the show, more about women's rights, information about my personal life story and how we can overcome adversity. While you are there, make sure you sign up for the newsletter. Until the next episode of Pave Podcast, let's work together and rise like a phoenix.